We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And away we go, episode 68 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Friday, May 21st, 2021, a day on which we can say that our Wizards have made the NBA playoffs. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, sir. That team, our team, it is in the NBA playoffs. You no longer have to worry about, well, they're in the play-in tournament, but that's technically not the NBA playoffs. That's the NBA postseason. Don't say playoffs. Gotta say postseason. No more. The Wizards are in the NBA playoffs for the first time in three seasons, thanks to a blowout win over the Indiana Pacers at Capital One Arena on Thursday night. 142-115, the final. It was a laugher, a smashing, a blasting, 
a pasting, a polaxing, pick whatever word you want to use. The Wizards rose to the occasion and they crushed the Pacers. It was great to see. And now comes a very difficult test. The one seed in the Eastern Conference, the Philadelphia 76ers. Much more on all of this coming up shortly. But hello and welcome. Happy Friday. This is a loaded installment of the Al Galdi podcast when it comes to the Washington football team. Washington released Morgan Moses and Jaron Christen on Thursday. Geez, that didn't take long with Moses off the news on Tuesday that Washington reportedly had given him permission to seek a trade. I'll get into all of that. And guess who spoke to TMZ Sports in a video that emerged on Thursday? The Donnie! First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yes, Danny boy, Dan Snyder. He seemingly never speaks publicly, and yet he did to TMZ Sports. Talked about the quest for a new stadium, the name change, and more. Dissect we shall the comments of the Donnie in just a bit. Special guest on the show, Sam Monson, lead NFL analyst for Pro Football Focus, co-host of the PFF NFL podcast. We will talk all about the Washington football team, including Washington's perhaps ahead of the curve approach to quarterback with Ryan Fitzpatrick. Yeah, you heard that right. And ahead of the curve approach to quarterback with a guy going into his age 39 season. I talked about this recently on the podcast. Sam and I are going to do a lot more on that. And you ready for this? Sam will explain why he views Washington as a Super Bowl contender. Yeah, I said it because he said it. Washington is a Super Bowl contender. You don't want to miss this. Capitals Bruins game four is Friday night in Boston. I'll give you a preview as the Caps, we hope, pull even at two in their first round Stanley Cup playoff series with the Bruins. We have Nationals Orioles at Nationals Park this coming weekend. Each team coming off a bad series. Nats losing three or four at the Chicago Cubs in another series in which the Nats offense struggled. Orioles getting swept by the Tampa Bay Rays over three games at Oriole Park at Camden Yards in a series in which the Orioles pitching was putrid. So what will win out this weekend? The Nats bad hitting or the Orioles bad pitching? Can't wait to find out, uh, but I'll talk Nats and those later in the show. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from, you ready for this? Former United States Senator Mark Pryor. He was an Arkansas Senator from 2003 to 2015. Prior to that, no pun intended, he was the Attorney General of Arkansas. He went to Walt Whitman High School. He is a listener. He wrote some very nice things and has an idea for the podcast. Writes Senator Pryor, My idea is for you to do all of the work on this so your listeners don't have to. Basically, take last year's WFT roster, I know it changed a lot from game to game, and compare it to where the WFT is right now. In other words, who left from last year, who have they brought in through free agency in the draft, and your thoughts on that position for the 2021 season. Do a whole team analysis. To make it easier on your listeners, you could do it by groups, O-line, receivers, offensive backs, etc. Preferably, this could be done in one show, so it can't be super in-depth. It would be like a one-hour snapshot of our entire offseason and would help the fan base get a handle on what to expect next season. I consider myself the average fan, and I do not have time to keep up with all the changes. My sense is that we are improving, but we didn't get any true game changers like Chase Young. By the way, my two cents is that we are better coached and better run, and that has led to better players but it is incremental progress. The schedule next year looks hard to me. We might be lucky to finish at 10 and 7, which may not be good enough. 
before the playoffs. Thanks for reading. I won't wear you out with suggestions. Just keep up the good work. How about that? The senator from Arkansas. I yield the floor to the senator from Arkansas. Thank you for that, Senator Pryor. You know, I was worried for a bit while reading that email. I thought I was being summoned to testify before Congress. But no, the senator is just a big Washington football team fan. Yes, uh, your suggestion is a good one. I think when we get to the summer and we have that like six-week break during which basically nothing happens in the NFL. So talking about the time between the final offseason practice and the start of training camp, that to me is the best time to do the offseason and review stuff, especially because more stuff in the offseason could still happen, right? Washington over just the last week has officially signed two potential major contributors for the upcoming season and Charles Leno Jr. and Bobby McCain. And Washington has just released Morgan Moses. But how about that? Former U.S. Senator Mark Pryor, a listener. You see, this is the power of the podcast, the power of the pod, all kinds of big shots, all kinds of big time influential people, all kinds of big mahers are a part of what we're doing here. All right, speaking of big mahers, John Grandland is a big maher who also happens to be an excellent real estate agent. You know, right now is a great time to sell your home. Who you have sell your home matters. Here's why you should call my guy, John Grandland, aka John G. John Grandland's numbers do not lie. John G's homes this year are selling more than 40 days faster than average for more money than average. And best of all, they're selling for 99.89% of the asking price. When John G puts a plan together, you can trust it and you can trust that you're going to get paid. You remember what Randy Moss said years ago? Straight cash, homie. Yes, straight cash, homie. That's what John Grandlin puts in your pocket. Here's what Diane, who had John sell a single family home in Vienna, had to say, quote, I interviewed three realtors. John came in with an excellent marketing and pricing plan. He held several open houses, advised me on pricing and got me a great price in no time at all. I highly recommend John to anyone in Vienna slash Northern Virginia. End quote. John has flexible commission packages, including selling your home for free. Yes, you heard that right. For free, zero commission. Some conditions do apply. To learn more and to get the value of your home, visit this website, johngsellsforfree.com. That's johngsellsforfree.com. Or better yet, give John Granlin a call. Tell him that Al Galdi sent you and understand that you calling John Granlin helps to support this podcast. The phone number is 703 703- 537-6747. That's 703-537-6747. John Grandland of Real Broker. Tell him Al Galdi sent you. All right, so I got to tell you, I didn't know what to expect from the Wizards in this game against the Indiana Pacers at Capital One Arena on Thursday night. I mean, yes, it was a game that you said to yourself the Wizards should win. Yes, the Wizards had defeated the Pacers three times this past regular season. But knowing our Wizards, it would have been so Wizards for the Wizards to lose that game on Thursday night, especially with the performance that we saw from the Wizards in their previous game in this first ever NBA play-in tournament. Tuesday night, the 118-100 loss at the Boston Celtics in the 7-8 game in the Eastern Conference. Wizards, of course, needed to win on Thursday night to advance to the NBA playoffs to get the 8 seed in the Eastern Conference. Of course, the Wizards had earned the 8 seed for the regular season with what the Wiz did down the stretch, right? Winning 17 of the team's final 23 regular season games. But like I said, you just never know with the Wizards, man. Sometimes they look great. Sometimes they look awful. There's a reason I always play that Stephen A. Smith soundbite. The damn Washington Wizards. Exactly, Stephen A. Well, 
The Wizards showed up and then some on Thursday night. A 142-115 demolition of the Indiana Pacers at Capital One Arena. The Wizards get the eight seed in the Eastern Conference. The Wizards will face the one-seeded Philadelphia 76ers in the first round of the NBA playoffs. More on that momentarily. But this game on Thursday night, a total no-doubt route. The Wizards' largest deficit was trailing by three points in the first quarter. The Wizards never trailed in the game after the first quarter. The Wizards led by as many as 16 points in the second quarter, 32 points in the third quarter, and 38 points in the fourth quarter. The Wizards won the second quarter 36-23. The Wizards won the third quarter 48-31. The Wizards scored 48 points in just the third quarter on Thursday night. And my friends, we now can say that the Wizards in the 2020-2021 NBA season were, in fact, the Pacers' daddies. The Wizards go 4-0 against the Pacers over four games in the regular season, and now this first ever NBA play-in tournament. And how about the final scores of these games? March 29th, a 132-124 win over the Pacers at Capital One Arena. May 3rd, a 154-141 win over the Pacers at Capital One Arena. May 8th, a 133-132 overtime win at the Pacers. And now, May 20th, a 142-115 win over the Pacers at Capital One Arena. If our friend Arnold Schwarzenegger could do the honors, the Wizards, yes, were the Pacers' daddies in the 2020-2021 NBA season. Who is your daddy and what does he do? Yes, there you go. It is now official. You know, one of the things that really stood out watching the game on Thursday night was the pace. And the Pacers play at a super fast pace, just like the Wizards have loved to play at a super fast pace. But that is the thing, man. That is how the Wizards do their best. That's my concern, honestly. One of my biggest concerns, anyway, for this first round series against the Philadelphia 76ers is that the Sixers are not going to play at the pace at which the Wizards like to play. And that's going to end up dooming the Wizards. Because if the game slows down and it becomes that traditional half-court game that we're so used to seeing in the NBA playoffs... That's not what the Wizards do best. But anyway, this game was played at that super frenetic pace that the Wizards love. Wizards in the game ended up rolling offensively. The Wizards dominated this game statistically, shot 58.1% from the field, including 14 to 28 on threes. The Wizards held the Pacers to 41% shooting, including 15 to 41 on threes. So don't be uh, thrown off by the Pacers scoring 115 points. The Wizards played defense on Thursday night. The Wizards outscored the Pacers in the paint 72-40. The Wizards had 16 fast break points to the Pacers five. The Wizards out-rebounded the Pacers 52-40. And one of the real beauties of this game is that Scott Brooks got to rest a lot of his key players. Bradley Beal, who of course has been dealing with the ailing left hamstring, only had to play for 28 minutes, 24 seconds as a starter. And he did well. Four of seven on threes, 25 points, five rebounds, four assists versus four turnovers. Russell Westbrook only had to play for 33 minutes, 12 seconds as a starter. 0-1 on threes, 6-12 on twos, 6-9 on free throws, but he finished with 18 points, 15 assists versus three turnovers, eight rebounds, and had a game best plus minus rating of plus 30. Westbrook was good on Thursday night, a nice bounce back from his lackluster performance in the loss at the Celtics, especially in the second half of that game. And one of the moments that really stood out watching the game Westbrook just bullied Keelan Martin. You know, Keelan Martin has a two-inch height advantage on Westbrook. Keelan Martin has a 30-pound weight advantage on Westbrook. 
and yet Westbrook bullied Martin to the basket. Like I talked about the Wizards that scoring the Pacers by 32 points in the paint. Here's a classic reason why. Westbrook, right? He's always a reason for that. But especially in this moment, a driving and one bucket in the paint for a 32-29 Wizards lead with 11-27 left in the second quarter. Westbrook was on. was really good to see that. And so many other guys were on as well. Rui Hachimura, two or three on threes, 18 points, four rebounds, and just 25-24 as a starter. Howell Neto, two or four on threes, 14 points, three rebounds, two steals, and 25-41 as a starter. The Wizards' three-headed center monster delivered. How about some of these numbers? So Alex Len continued to do the thing of starting, not playing much, but was efficient. You know, he's been more efficient than I think people realize. Alex Len on Thursday night plays for just 13 minutes, 13 seconds as a starter, but finishes with four points on two or two shooting, seven rebounds, and two assists versus one turnover. Daniel Gafford, my God, Daniel Gafford was great on Thursday night. 22 minutes, two seconds off the bench, 15 points, six of eight shooting, 13 rebounds, and five blocks. And all five of the blocks came in the first half, including one of the highlights of the night, a vile leaping baseline block on Doug McDermott on an attempted driving bucket with 120 left in the second quarter. It's well known by now the extent to which Daniel Gafford has been awesome as a trade acquisition for Tommy Shepard and the Wizards. But boy, was he good on Thursday night. You know, because he's not necessarily excellent in every game. He was excellent on Thursday night. 15 points, 13 rebounds, five blocks in 22 minutes off the bench. And the third head of the three-headed Wizards center monster came through. Robin Lopez, he only played for six minutes, 18 seconds off the bench, but he had nine points on four or five shooting and three rebounds. How about that? Nine points in a little more than six minutes of playing time. Ish Smith was good off the bench. Exactly 22 minutes of playing time for him. Eight points, four seven shooting, six assists versus two turnovers, four rebounds in the game's second best plus minus rating at plus 26. Anthony Gill in just 627 off the bench went two or two on threes and scored 10 points. And speaking of making threes, Davies Bertans, believe it or not, made two threes. He went two of six on threes in 1838 off the bench, off going, remember, 0 of 7 on threes in the loss at the Celtics. And so the Wizards are in. They are in the NBA playoffs and now will face the one seed in the East, the Philadelphia 76ers. Game one at Philadelphia, Sunday afternoon at one. Game two at Philly, Wednesday night at seven. The Wizards went 0 and 3 against the 76ers in the regular season. So 3 and 0 against the Pacers in the regular season, 0 and 3 against the Sixers in the regular season. But it's worth pointing out the first two of those losses were early in the season when the Wizards were a mess. In fact, the Wizards began their regular season with a loss at the Philadelphia 76ers, 113-107 on December 23rd. Then came another loss to the Sixers. This was also in Philly, January 6th, 141 136. That was the game in which Bradley Beal scored a single game franchise record tying 60 points. Yes, Bradley Beal scored 60 and the Wizards still lost. I remember going nuts over that when it happened. And then more recently, March 12th, the Wizards uh, got ripped by the Sixers at Capital One Arena, 127-101 and one of the ugliest losses for the Wizards during the regular season. That game was a complete disaster for the Wizards. So no, this is not a great matchup, okay? There's a reason the Sixers are the one seed in the East. You know, the Sixers in the regular season were second in the NBA in defensive rating at 107.0. Defensive rating is points allowed per 100 possessions per NBA.com. Wizards actually finished 20th in the NBA in defensive rating. I was a little surprised by that, but remember the Wizards defense was better down the stretch of the regular season, but still the Sixers are an elite defensive team. 
the Sixers are plenty capable offensively. Sixers finished 13th in the NBA in offensive rating, which is points per 100 possessions per NBA.com. Wizards were 17th in the NBA and offensive rating. And the Sixers, of course, have a freak of nature in Joel Embiid. Joel Embiid has just had one of the great seasons you'll ever see a big man have. He, Nikola Jokic of the Denver Nuggets, and Steph Curry of the Golden State Warriors announced on Thursday evening as the finalists for this year's NBA MVP award. If you look at some of the advanced stuff, it is especially kind to Embiid. Embiid finished the regular season second in the NBA in player efficiency rating at 30.32. The Wizards' best player in player efficiency rating is Bradley Beal, and he was all the way down to 21. Like, Joel Embiid was a monster this past regular season. Now, I know he can get banged up. You know, the Wizards, to me, are going to have to be physical with Embiid, going to have to rough up Embiid. The three-headed center monster is going to have its work cut out for itself, but that doesn't mean that the three-headed center monster is going to get demolished, or at least should get demolished, by Embiid. Like, yes, Embiid is better than any singular member of the three-headed center monster, but I'd like to think that this triumvirate of Alex Len, Daniel Gafford, and Robin Lopez can do some things against the Sixers in this series. We'll see. I mean, maybe, you know, those words turn out to be a joke and Embiid ravages the Wizards, as Embiid, by the way, ravaged the Wizards in the regular season. But I'd like to think the Wizards are better. Daniel Gafford has got to be playing with a lot of confidence here. Let's see what the Wizards are able to do against Embiid and the Sixers in the first round. We will save all the big picture stuff for when the Wizards season is over. There is a lot of big picture stuff to get into with the Wizards. But for now, as a lifelong Wizards slash Bullets fan, I would like to enjoy what the Wizards are in the midst of. And like I keep coming back to, it doesn't have to be that this is fool's gold. It could be that the improved play of the Wizards this season is a sign that things are better than we thought. And that if the Wizards can just add another major piece this offseason, and I get that that's easier said than done, the Wizards could be right in the thick of things when it comes to contending for one of the top spots in the Eastern Conference next season. Well, speaking of top spots, Dr. George Verghese, medical director for the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, is one of the top doctors in the area. Board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon, the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland focuses on medical dermatology and skin cancer diagnosis and comprehensive care, including something very special and cutting-edge, superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT is revolutionary. It is a non-surgical skin cancer treatment that's safe and effective. Understand if you yourself have skin cancer or someone you know or love has skin cancer, uh, having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery. And the downtime and side effects that go with surgery. You have options. Understand that a non-surgical option in SRT is available. Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area, and SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, call 301-396-3401. Make sure you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. That phone number again, 301 396 3401 or visit midatlanticskin.com. That's midatlanticskin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. 
Well, so much for the Washington football team trading Morgan Moses. On Thursday's podcast, I talked about how I was not convinced that Washington would be able to trade Moses. And sure enough, Washington could not trade Moses. And so on Thursday, Washington released Moses and Jaron Christen, two more victims in the Ron Rivera baptism of fire. I am telling you, that maybe more than anything is the theme this offseason for the Washington football team. Ron is ousting those who were here before him. The head coach in the coach-centric approach, the Don of the Washington football team, Don Ron, is implementing his vision. And for the record, I'm fine with this. I'm good with this. That doesn't mean that I just like blindly accept everything that Ron does and says, but he does get a benefit of the doubt with me. And I know with a lot of you, he's earned that. He ended up getting a lot right regarding the 2020 season. That cannot be forgotten. However, I do wonder, even if getting rid of Moses and Kristen is just all about believing in Charles Leno Jr., Samuel Cosme, and Cornelius Lucas, like what if one or more of those guys gets hurt? I mean, we're not that far removed from Washington's 2017 season in which it was one offensive line injury after another. Like, how can you be so sure that you'll have no use for Moses and even Christian? But that aside, I'm not one of these people all up in arms that Moses is gone. I am willing to trust the process right now when it comes to Ron Rivera. And I say that as someone with a lot of respect and appreciation for what Morgan Moses did as a Washington player. You know, the Morgan Moses story is a good one. Washington took Moses in the third round of the 2014 draft out of Virginia. His rookie season ends up mostly being a lost season. He suffers a Liz Frank injury in December of his 2014 rookie season. Washington then takes a right tackle, supposedly anyway, in Brandon Sheriff, right, with the number five pick in the 2015 draft. But Sheriff ends up moving from right tackle to right guard shortly after the start of training camp in 2015. And a big reason for that, the rise of Moses, who ends up being Washington's starting right tackle for the next six seasons, 2015 through 2020. I mean, think about that. That is a very successful 2014 third round pick, the one that's used on Moses and what he ended up becoming for the team. He, of course, was insanely durable. Morgan Moses never missing a game over his six seasons as Washington starting right tackle. Started all 96 of the team's regular season games during that stretch. Started both of the team's playoff games during that stretch. I mean, compare that with what Washington got from other key offensive linemen during Moses' tenure as a team starting right tackle. Like Brandon Sheriff, okay? Brandon Sheriff has been Washington's starting right guard for as long as Morgan Moses was the team starting right tackle, right? 2015 through 2020. In the same span in which Moses played in all 96 of Washington's regular season games, Brandon Sheriff has played in just 78 of Washington's 96 regular season games. 18 missed games for Brandon Sheriff in the same period of time in which Morgan Moses has missed zero games. And for Sheriff, he's missed 16 games over the last three seasons. Sheriff's played in just 32 of Washington's 48 regular season games over the last three years, 2018 through 2020. How about our old pal Trent Williams? Okay, Trent Williams, of course, was Washington's starting left tackle for years. But if you just look at the time in which Trent was here and Moses was the right tackle, so 2015 through 2018, right? Because Trent didn't play at all in the 2019 season. Trent missed 15 games over those four seasons, 2015 through 2018. Again, Moses didn't miss a game. How about Sean Laval? There's a name from the past at this point. Sean Laval was Washington's starting left guard 2015 through 2018 in terms of when Sean's time coincided with Moses' time. 
in a same span in which, again, Moses did not miss any games. Sean Laval played in just 31 of a possible 64 regular season games with Washington due to injury. That's something else. So from 2015 through 2018, Moses doesn't miss a game. Trent misses 15 games. Laval misses 33 games. Like just to give you an appreciation for the durability of Morgan Moses. So I don't think we should just disregard that. That matters. Posting matters. And Moses has, if not fixed, then certainly improved upon the thing that had maybe been his biggest issue, which was the penalty problem, right? Moses in the 2018 season committed an NFL worst 14 accepted penalties and an NFL worst 16 total penalties. He had eight holding penalties and seven false start penalties. And the penalty problem drove me nuts. And I know it drove a lot of you nuts. The worst part about this was like the denial that Moses and Jay Gruden were in in that 2018 season about Moses's penalty problem. Each guy would blame the officiating. You know, Jay essentially would throw his hands up when asked about Moses's penalty problem. It's like, how about instead of complaining about it or being fed up with it, you fix it, you address it, you know, and they just, they, they wouldn't do it that year. And Moses did continue to have a penalty problem actually in 2019, nine accepted penalties, 11 total penalties. But the penalty problem was better for Moses in 2020, six accepted penalties, seven total penalties. I still do wonder, like, where did this come from with Morgan Moses? He's not a perfect player, but, you know, you think about, like, just the out-of-nowhere nature of this, at least for those of us on the outside looking in. It was just on Tuesday, right, that multiple reports came out that Washington had given Morgan Moses permission to seek a trade. And I think we all knew at that point, well, it's over. It's done. I know I felt that way. I said that on the podcast. When when that comes out that a team has given a guy permission to seek a trade, the guy never ends up going back to the initial team. And sure enough, Moses, within the week, ends up being released. But again, the question is why? Why did Ron Rivera do this? If this was for salary cap purposes, you would have done this early in the offseason. If this was because you just felt like the guy doesn't have it anymore, you would have done this earlier in the offseason. I have said that it feels like something happened. And I wondered, well, did Moses try to pull a Trent here and ask rather strongly for, say, a contract extension or maybe more guaranteed money, that kind of a thing? Well, we did get this on Thursday. Washington football team insider Sam Fortier of the Washington Post tweeted that Moses did not demand a new contract nor request a trade per two sources. So if that's the case, then I guess Ron Rivera just decided, look, I like Samuel Cosme a lot. We got ourselves Charles Leno Jr. We still have Cornelius Lucas. We don't need Morgan Moses anymore. This does now seem to have been something predicated on Ron Rivera just feeling that Washington now has guys better than Moses, even though, like I said, there's always that potential for these guys who Ron likes more than Moses to get hurt. And even though there remains plenty to like about Moses, right? We talked about the durability. You know, Moses is not that old. He's going into just his age 30 season. He's not that expensive. You know, Moses' base salary for the 2021 season is $7.5 million. That's a very reasonable base salary for a guy with Morgan Moses' track record. And Moses is coming off a good season. Moses in the 2020 regular season ranked sixth out of 40 qualified right tackles an overall pro football focus grade at 80.6. That's a career best single season overall PFF grade for Moses. So if you have questions, I hear you. I have questions too, but I think it's also okay to at the same time say to yourself, well, Ron has earned the benefit of the doubt here. You know, Ron's not a dummy. He's not stupid. So he must have his reasons for doing this. 
And the fact that Washington couldn't trade Moses maybe is an indication of how Moses is viewed around the league. We'll see. It'll be interesting to see where he lands and how he does for sure. But for now, there's no doubt. Ron has decided we're better off without you. We have guys who are better than you. And we'll see if Ron is proven correct on this. As for Jaron Christian, so I don't think anyone is shocked that Christian gets released. It is kind of notable though, right? I mean, Jaron Christian did begin last season as Washington starting left tackle. He ends up not even making it to offseason practices. The 2021 season is to be Jaron Christian's age 25 season and was going to be the final season of his rookie contract. So Christian, like I said, in the 2020 regular season, was Washington starting left tackle at the beginning of the season. He was Washington's LT1 over the first six regular season games, but he was placed on the reserve slash injured list on November 19th off having been inactive for the previous three games due to a knee injury. And that was the thing with Christian. Injuries really got to him. Christian, you may recall, in his 2018 rookie season, placed on the reserve slash injured list November 13th of that year due to a torn MCL suffered in that wild win at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in week 10. So in two of his three seasons, injuries ended up doing him in. 2019 season, Christian largely stayed healthy, but he got buried. He did not play on a single offensive snap in three of Washington's final four games in a lost three and 13 season. And the word on Christian became that the guy had work ethic and desire issues. So I thought the 2020 season was a big spot for Christian, especially with a new coaching staff. Seemed like he was trending well again, beginning the season as a starting left tackle, but really didn't do that well. Uh, His overall grade for pro football focus ended up being just 62.3, gets hurt again, and then gets replaced by Cornelius Lucas, who I thought did a really nice job as Washington starting left tackle in 2020. Jaron Christian ends up being a fail of a third round pick. Remember, Washington took Christian with a third round pick in the 2018 draft out of Louisville. And so now, truly, it's all about Charles Leno Jr., Samuel Cosme, and Cornelius Lucas as Washington's top three offensive tackles for the upcoming season. And maybe we should even hold off on saying that because who knows what could be coming next in regards to Washington's roster. Ron Rivera, again, baptism of fire. You don't know what's going to happen in terms of who could be on the outs. But these guys are all Ron guys, right? These are all guys who were brought here by Ron. So I tend to think that that insulates those guys from being victimized in the baptism of fire. You do wonder with someone like a Moses, he's been here for a while. Moses is not beholden to Ron the way that someone like, say, a Samuel Cosme or a Charles Leno Jr. is beholden to Ron. Now, look, as a head coach, you shouldn't just keep guys who are beholden to you. It's not about that. It's about keeping the best players. But if it's a tie or if it's close and you say to yourself, well, look, I'm trying to build a new culture here. And this guy, I don't know that he's all in on the new culture I'm trying to establish. Well, then that guy could be on the outs, especially when that guy does have a $7.5 million base salary, which I mean, to me is not overly expensive, but it's also not nothing. You know, you can carry over your salary cap space and maybe that's a strategy here of we think we're just fine without him and we'd love to carry over that cap space into next season with the cap going up and with us, remember, trying to extend some guys here, right? Jonathan Allen, Deron Payne, Terry McLaurin, even Logan Thomas. Don't forget about that. Logan is set to be a free agent after this upcoming season. But it really is remarkable, the purge of the Washington roster since Ron Rivera took over. I mean, he didn't take over that long ago. It was in January 2020. And since then, it's been one mainstay after another, gone, discarded in some form or fashion, by Washington, Trent Williams, Dwayne Haskins, Alex Smith, Colt McCoy, Jordan Reed, Chris Thompson, Adrian Peterson, Darius Geis, 
Paul Richardson, Ryan Kerrigan, Josh Norman, Quentin Dunbar, Monte Nicholson, Nick Sundberg, and now Morgan Moses. And these are just players. You know, there are all kinds of front office people we could talk about. You know, one of the things making the rounds on social media on Thursday was Miss BJ having been fired. Now, I don't know that that was something done by Ron. Okay. That could be something that was done by Dan. That could be something that was done by Jason Wright. But understand Miss BJ, BJ Blanchard, she was the receptionist at the Washington football team facility for 28 years. People loved her. She was beloved. I mean, I remember interacting with Miss BJ. She was great. And she was let go recently. Now, a bunch of people were let go recently in terms of like behind the scenes people for Washington, like people that work for the website, etc. Um, we don't know why. Again, we're not sure who was behind this, but it's like there's been a lot of change and a lot of longtime people with the organization, not just players who have been shown the door in recent times. The winds of change are blowing. And of course, that holds true for the roster. And we saw that again this week with what has happened with Morgan Moses. And as a fan of the team, what you hope for is that the right decisions are being made. But like I said, you have someone in charge in Ron Rivera who earned a benefit of the doubt with the way last season went. And all you can hope for is that that benefit of the doubt continues to be justified. So how about our guy, the Danny, Dan Snyder, who basically never speaks publicly, right? Engaging in a conversation with TMZ Sports that was published on Thursday. The chat happening while the Danny, his wife, Tanya Snyder, Washington football team president, Jason Wright, and others were, quote, touring stadiums, end quote, in Los Angeles. Good chunk of the conversation has to do with Washington's quest for a new stadium. Here was the audio. You'll hear Dan answering questions for most of it, and then you'll hear Jason Wright step in and do some talking. Mr. Snyder, what are you doing here in Los Angeles? We're touring stadiums. We're, uh, we're coming uh, west coast and touring. There's about 12 of us, and we're just uh, looking to build a new venue uh, back home in uh, uh, D.C., Virginia, Maryland. So we're, we're everywhere. Jason, uh, our whole group, 12 of us, uh, we're, we're having some fun and, uh, and, and looking at the uh, future. At first, we thought we, you were going to bring your team here. We already have two. You know? <laughs> no, uh, no, no. We're we're good. We're good in, uh, in Washington. So, but uh, that was uh, good. So this is huge news. You're building a new stadium. Do you have a spot picked out for the new? Not, not yet. Not yet. We're we're every day trying to figure it out. But we're uh, we're right now making big plans and uh, uh, coming soon to Washington. Coming soon. Do you have a, a, a tentative date? Yeah, we'll, we'll be uh, 2027. Okay. Opening up probably a little before then. Will it be a little bit closer to the White House? It possibly could be. It possibly could be. Now, these have so many new innovative features, amenities. Do you have anything exciting planned for fans? Well, I think uh, what we're going to build will be uh, state-of-the-art. It will be uh, a new home of our uh, Washington franchise, and uh, we're just excited. We're traveling all over the world. We're actually uh, going to Europe, and uh, we're running around uh, uh, just looking at uh, the best of the best. So all over Europe... Uh, football stadiums there. Yeah, I mean, we're taking inspiration from everywhere. Okay. Because if we're going to do something that our fans really deserve, which is cutting edge and innovative, we've right. got to take in all the ideas, so we're absorbing. And the good thing is, you know, we don't know where we're going to be at, D.C., Maryland, or Virginia. 
we've got great partners yeah. out there. People across the government there and across economic development organizations that want to work with us and are eager to make stuff happen so we can be creative and bring some of these ideas back. That's why we're here looking yeah. at this. Yeah. Being the home of D- in DC, will there be a presidential suite? <laughs> the, pres- the president and vice president are always welcome always, yeah, at Washington football always. games, and will always be yeah. welcome at Washington yeah. football games for sure. Any developments on the permanent name change? No, continuing yeah. to work hard on that. Yeah, continuing to work we'll hard. We'll let on you that. know soon. Okay. Well, yeah. people seem to love the Washington football team. Um, is there any chance that might stick? We're working hard. We're working hard. At, you know, there's so many different directions it can go. Our, our fans are pretty clear, though. We've got some pretty good direction. Yeah. That, yeah. that one, that yeah, one we will go pretty soon. A lot of direction. Bro. Yeah. All right, so a few nuggets from the video, which lasted for about 2 minutes, 30 seconds. So I actually thought that Danny came off pretty well. If you watch the video, he doesn't look nervous. He, to me, didn't really sound nervous. I mean, I'm not saying that he was, you know, Dwayne Johnson in terms of the poise, but that's not an easy thing to deal with. When out of nowhere TMZ comes at you and starts asking you a bunch of questions, and I thought that Dan handled that pretty well. You know, this was not the Danny who we saw at the Ron Rivera introductory press conference in January 2020 when we got the all-time classic. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yes, in that TMZ sports video, there was no nervous moment of speaking in which Dan, when he meant to say Happy New Year, said Happy Thanksgiving. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yes, same to you. That is an all-timer. Anyway, in terms of what the Danny said, so Dan said that Washington is, quote, looking to build a new venue back home in D.C., Virginia, Maryland, end quote. When the issue of, well, where's the thing going to be at popped up, Danny said D.C. first, but then kind of caught himself and said Virginia, Maryland. So I thought that was kind of funny to note. Uh, Dan said that Washington's next stadium will be opening in, quote, 2027, probably a little before then, end quote. So those two things are at odds, right? It's either 2027 or not. He says it's opening up in 2027, probably a little before then. So I thought that stood out. Uh, Dan, when asked if Washington's next stadium will be closer to the White House, said, quote, it possibly could be, end quote. So again, suggesting D.C., although, you know, not committing to anything. Uh, Dan said that Washington's next stadium will be, quote, state-of-the-art, end quote, and that he and his crew will actually be traveling to Europe to look at stadiums over there. And then we hear Jason Wright, and, you know, he gives us his usual corporate speak, which is fine. You know, Wright's good at that. If you watch the video, you get the sense that Jason is like, all right, this is cute, but this has gone on long enough. I'm going to step in here, give my corporate spiel, and then we're done. You know, that kind of a thing. Uh, and then you got some stuff on the name. And I love when the guy asking the question says, people seem to love the Washington football team. Uh, you have to watch the video to see Dan's and Jason's reactions, because to me, the reactions are basically, uh, not really. Uh, people don't really love the Washington football team. And no, people do not love the Washington football team as a name. I do not love the Washington football team as a name. I've made my stance clear. I am totally fine with the Washington football team as a temporary name, even for multiple seasons, but I want no part of the Washington football team as the permanent name. Football team is not a name. You are essentially the team with no name if you are the Washington football team. In fact, did you see what the Los Angeles Chargers tweeted two Wednesdays ago, May 12th, the day on which the 2021 regular season schedule came out? The Los Angeles Chargers tweeted upon the news breaking that Washington will be hosting the Chargers in week one of the 2020 season. Quote, breaking, 
our week one opponent is a football team, end quote. And look, I don't lose sleep over what NFL teams other than Washington tweet, all right? I know there's a lot of fun back and forth these days between teams on Twitter, but it's just the idea of you are leaving yourself open for criticism, for mockery, when the name of your team is football team. You are an easy target when the name of your team is football team, when the name of your team isn't a name because you have no name. Also, a permanent name of the Washington football team would require fans calling the team Washington because football team is just dumb. And Washington is an awkward and cumbersome way of referring to your team. No one who's a fan of the Nationals, Capitals, or Wizards ever refers to those teams as Washington. People who aren't fans of those teams call those teams Washington. And Washington is an onerous word to say. It's three syllables. Wa-shing-tun. You want a one-syllable means of referring to your team, right? Nats, Caps, Wiz, Terp, Skins, that kind of a thing. So sorry, TMZ Sports. People don't seem to love the Washington football team as a name. Anyway, back to the new stadium. Washington's current lease at FedEx Field is set to expire in 2027. In case you don't know, we're currently in the year 2021. So even if the Washington football team finalized the site of the next stadium tomorrow, getting the new stadium good to go for the 2027 season wouldn't necessarily be easy. The hope was that Washington's next stadium would open prior to the end of the lease at FedEx Field expiring so that the team could get the heck out of there. And that still could happen. But with each passing day, that happening becomes less and less likely. This process for the new stadium has taken a long time. Understand, we first learned that the Donnie was looking to build a new stadium all the way back in August 2014. That was when Dan gave an interview to NBC Sports Washington, which then was known by a different name, Comcast Sportsnet Mid-Atlantic. And Dan said in that interview, quote, we've started the process, end quote. Well, the process continues. I'm a little bit more process oriented. Yes, Kirk, we know you're process oriented. And Washington's stadium process has taken a very long time. And keep in mind, Washington seemingly isn't just looking to build a new stadium. The new stadium may well be part of a new Washington football team universe in which you have the stadium, a new team facility, housing, retail, restaurants, etc. I've heard talk of a Washington football team museum, which would be really cool, although I'm not sure how you deal with the name thing there, right? I mean, you're going to have, what, decades and decades of history with the team known as the Redskins, but you can't have any Redskins gear or memorabilia on display. Like, how would that work? So not sure with that. But anyway, this may well not just be about a stadium. You know, this isn't just about necessarily a field and a bunch of seats. There's a lot more to all of this than just the actual stadium. As for D.C., Virginia, or Maryland, who knows? Okay, we've had so much stuff pop up with all three locations over the years regarding the next Washington football team stadium. Dan wants the next stadium in D.C. I think that's pretty clear. The Washington Post actually reported back in February 2019 that, in fact, Dan's first choice of location for the new stadium is the RFK Stadium site in D.C. But as you likely know, there are major obstacles to Washington's next stadium being in D.C., including the fact that the 190-acre RFK Stadium site is owned by the federal government. And even if Congress decided to sell the RFK Stadium site to D.C., there still would be opposition to Washington's next stadium being built there because you got to figure out who pays for this. And these days, no city or state wants to be paying for a new stadium. You do have the potential for legalized sports gambling 
to help to fund a Washington football team stadium in D.C., Maryland, or Virginia. So that is something to be thinking about. But here's the deal. Danny ultimately has to get this right. And he knows that. And I think that's part of why this whole thing has taken so long. Look, we can blame Dan for many, many, many things. But FedEx Field is not one of them. He didn't build that. That was a Jack Kent Cook production, and it was a debacle. Now, if the team is better over the life of FedEx Field, we don't look at FedEx Field with near the negativity that we do. I've always felt that way. You know, RFK Stadium is not some palace, but we look back upon RFK very fondly because that was the home of the team in its glory years. Washington's first season at FedEx Field was 1997, two years prior to Dan buying the team. The team's record over the course of the team's time in the stadium, just like the team's record under the ownership of the Donnie, terrible. But there are, of course, things inherent to FedEx Field that aren't good. FedEx Field isn't in a great location. FedEx Field isn't surrounded by great and appealing things to do. FedEx Field doesn't have a metro stop right at FedEx Field. And for the coaches and players, FedEx Field is a ways away from the team facility in Ashburn. And understand, most if not all of the coaches and players live in Virginia. Washington coaches and players for years have despised that this is the case, that the stadium is so far away from where these guys live and from the team facility. And I'm not telling you to like shed a tear for the coaches and players over this, but just know that this has been an unappealing part of coaching and playing for Washington over the years. Nothing matters more than the team being good. Let me make that clear. Nothing matters more than the team being good. But that doesn't mean that getting the next stadium right doesn't matter. It does. It matters a lot. And hopefully, someday, we're able to say that the Donnie got the new stadium right. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Exactly. Very pleased to welcome the Al Galdi podcast right now. Sam Monson, lead NFL analyst for Pro Football Focus, co-host of the PFF NFL podcast, one of the smartest guys out there when it comes to talking NFL. And he's a big fan of a lot of what Washington has done this offseason. Sam, it's great to welcome you back to the podcast, man. How are you? Doing good. How about you? Doing very well. Uh, Excited to have you back on here. So lots of stuff I want to get into with you. Let's start with something that you wrote recently, a piece with the headline, the Washington football team is building a contender despite no elite quarterback. In the first line of the piece, the Washington football team has a real chance to contend for a Super Bowl in 2021, despite relying on Ryan Fitzpatrick at quarterback. Uh, That's outstanding. I love reading that. But you really believe that Washington is a Super Bowl contender? Yeah, I think so. I mean, they're not going to be the favorites. You know, obviously teams like Kansas City, Tampa Bay, the teams with a great roster and an elite quarterback are always going to be the teams you look to first for the Super Bowl. But Washington is doing as, I think, as good as you can do if you don't have one of those guys. And I don't think that not having one of those guys precludes you from being in that Super Bowl conversation. Um, and I think, you know, it's, I asked, I got asked on the, our podcast today, whether they're doing the right thing to, to sort of go all in, if you like, with Ryan Fitzpatrick, a quarterback, and essentially what is their path to a future franchise quarterback. And I think ultimately they just don't care yet. You know, they're in this world where they're good. They were a playoff team last year. Okay, it was in the NFC East. It was a bit of a punchline. But they got dramatically better this offseason and brought in a quarterback who – yeah, he's not a, he's not amazing, Ryan Fitzpatrick, but he's a hell of an upgrade over what they had last year, even Alex Smith. Um, he's a solid average NFL quarterback, and they've surrounded him with probably the best uh, supporting cast and environment 
that Fitzpatrick has ever been in. So I think they think that they can win. They can get to the playoffs again. They can beat better teams in the NFC East. They can be a real challenger in the postseason, and they'll deal with the quarterback situation in the future. And Maybe this season they won't have a shot at um, you know, a top five pick and a quarterback that they can draft for the future, but maybe they re-up with Fitzpatrick again. Maybe they look at the next sort of veteran off-cast that can do a good job while you have a great team around them. I think that they've just taken the approach that, look, we're good enough right now that we need to take a swing at this. There's no point in blowing this all up and trying to look for a new franchise quarterback again. Let's see what we can get done with the guys available to us. So Ron Rivera's actually talked about this lately, including on the Chris Collinsworth podcast. And he essentially said, look, if you could have a Tom Brady type, that's great. But, and he kept bringing this guy up, Nick Foles. And he said, Nick Foles made a Super Bowl. And his basic point was, you can do really well, even with, say, a guy who in name is average, but perhaps has the potential to play at a well above average level, as of course we saw Nick Foles do in the postseason for the 2017 season. Do you think Ron's onto something there with like, even in this era in which, you know, everyone's so fixated on the franchise quarterback, that there actually is real value in having someone who maybe is just good enough and that you can go far with a guy who is good enough at quarterback? Yeah, I think so. Look, he's having the Tom Brady and the Patrick Mahomes, having an elite quarterback is what everybody's looking for. But there's only four or five of those guys in the NFL. So everybody else needs to come up with a different plan. And some guys are going to be bad enough that their different plan is let's roll the dice in the draft and let's hope we find another one. Let's hope we find number five or number six in that elite quarterback group. But 20 teams are left with a different situation where you have something else at quarterback. You have a good quarterback or an average quarterback or a below average quarterback, and you have to figure out a way of getting it done anyway. And Fitzpatrick, I think, is pretty much a bang average NFL quarterback. Over the last three years, his PFF grade ranks 15th in the NFL, so almost exactly in the middle. But the other interesting part of that is Fitzpatrick has elite games in his uh, in his last couple of years. Like Fitzpatrick has a bunch of games, individual games, where he has a PFF grade above 90. And that's not easy to do, and I think he has amongst the, the highest number of those elite games of any quarterback in the NFL. Now, they're offset by a bunch of bad games as well, and that's the the difference between a Fitzpatrick and a, you know, a Patrick Mahomes or a Russell Wilson. Um, but if he catches those elite games at the right time, that's where you go from being, all right, we made the playoffs. Let's see what happens to the kind of Nick Foles run that Ron Rivera is talking about. Nick Foles, probably, I think the best two games of his life, certainly when you adjust for a situation, but just overall, I think the best two performances he's ever had in the NFL came in the NFC Championship game and then the Super Bowl. So if you have a quarterback that at least has that capability and you know the rest of the team is good enough to put those guys in the in the playoffs, in the situation where they're going to have a chance to make a run, you can, you can take that gamble. Like maybe it comes up and works out for you. And if it doesn't, you're the same as 31 other teams in the NFL didn't quite make it either. Yeah, and if it doesn't, you're also not out, say, multiple first-round picks. I, I mean, just thinking about what Washington is doing, it seems to me there may be like a really shrewd, you know, moneyball-like exploitation of a market inefficiency here where in a time in which so many NFL teams are giving up so much to get potential, not even definite, but potential franchise quarterbacks via trade-ups in drafts, and we're seeing so many of these trade-ups not work out, 
Washington zigs while everyone else is zagging and signs Ryan Fitzpatrick to a one-year $10 million deal. Like, that to me does seem like a really smart, against-the-grain, contrarian play at the quarterback position. It definitely, and I've said this for a while, that it's not without precedent. You know, the Minnesota Vikings, for basically the entire 1990s, did a similar thing. They had a very good team. They were consistently very good on both sides of the ball, and they didn't really have a quarterback of the future. They kept rolling the dice with these with this sequence of old veterans that have proven they can play at the NFL level but aren't superstars or weren't superstars at the time the Vikings had them, and they just kept going through until eventually they wound up in a position where they had a shot at drafting a guy like Dante Culpepper and they pulled the trigger. I think that's what Washington are going to do. That whether it's Fitzpatrick, um, you know, one and two years out of him, maybe they become a, a place where Jared Goff ends up after a season in Detroit. There, there are going to be quarterbacks available that can do the same sort of job within this offense if the low price approach to the position lets them keep a good team around them and eventually they'll find their way towards, you know, a young franchise quarterback of the future. But I think they're looking at this and saying, this isn't the only way of winning. This is not necessarily the way you have to do things. So let's just keep going and and take quarterback one step at a time. Talking Washington football team with Sam Modson, lead NFL analyst for Pro Football Focus, the co-host of the PFF NFL podcast. What does it say to you about the quarterback position that Ryan Fitzpatrick has had maybe the two best seasons of his NFL career in his age 37 and age 38 seasons? Like, it it strikes me in in talking with you right now, it's it's sort of a a weird push-pull here because on the one hand, you could say, well, the quarterback position has never mattered more. On the other hand, guys have never been better older. And and it feels like in some ways, it's actually easier to play quarterback than ever before. How do you sort of balance those things? Yeah, and I think Fitzpatrick also understood better as the years went on how he needs to play the game. Like Fitzpatrick knows that he isn't Patrick Mahomes, and he knows he doesn't have the physical tools of Patrick Mahomes. So Fitzpatrick understands that the way he needs to play the game is more reliant on receivers and the talent that he has around him. And we saw a little bit of that, um, you know, those sound effects clips of him coaching up Tua on the sideline saying, look, sometimes you're not going to be able to go through your progression and get one to two to three and find the open guy and all those kinds of things. Sometimes it's going to be one, put the ball in the air, give that guy a shot. And I think Fitzpatrick is the best quarterback of the NFL at playing this, you know, YOLO style of football where he just puts the ball in the air and gives a big, good receiver a chance to make a play at the end. And sometimes that doesn't work. You know, sometimes the DB is going to win those contests and you, you just look, you know, careless with the ball and you put the ball in harm's way a ton but sometimes it works out for you and you get a career year out of a Devontae Parker or you get that incredible year he had with the Jets when they had uh, Brandon Marshall and Eric Decker or you get you know the some great games from the Tampa Bay receiving group I, I think Fitzpatrick's just understood that that's how he needs to play the game and it's going to be a little bit volatile but when it goes your way and when you have good talent around him he's able to give those guys a shot to make plays. Yeah, it's funny. You brought up the Minnesota Vikings thing, and that is such a fascinating thing to look back upon. The Vikings in a nine-season stretch, 1992 through 2000, made the playoffs in eight of nine seasons with seven different primary QB1s. Rich Gannon, Jim McMahon, Warren Moon, Brad Johnson, Randall Cunningham, Jeff George, and Dante Culpepper. And, you know, I know people can look back at that and say, well, you know, they made two NFC Championship games but never really won truly anything. But, 
like, were they ahead of their time doing that? Like, just kind of going from one guy to the next, taking, in some cases, older guys who had been great and maybe could be really good again and trying to do quarterback that way. Yeah, I just think that, look, they, they showed that you don't always have to be in this endless cycle of high-end rookie, see if he has it, flame out, do it again, reload, 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 and keep swinging until you find the next young, great quarterback in a rookie deal. I think they showed that, look, if you have a good team, if you're capable of getting to the playoffs and winning, you don't, you can keep working these veteran quarterbacks that have shown they can play. And I think particularly in today's NFL, it quarterback, um, quarterbacks have never been on the move more and more viable quarterbacks have never been more available than they are at the moment. Maybe there was a, there was definitely a period where I don't think you would have been able to do that. You know, guys like Alex Smith, we're being handed $100 million contracts because the prospect of not having an Alex Smith was terrifying to teams. That was how bereft the quarterback market was. And there were teams out there that went years without even coming close to a viable player. But right now, it isn't that hard to find viable quarterback play. Right, Andy Dalton can play in the NFL and start and be okay. And he was a backup last year until injuries. Marcus Mariota can start and be okay, and he was a backup all last season. Um, Cam Newton had to sign consecutive deals for virtually nothing, you know, just incentive-laden contracts with the Patriots because it just isn't hard to find that caliber of quarterback play anymore. So, again, if you're a team like Washington, yeah, you could make a huge move and trade up and, and gamble on a Justin Fields or a Mac Jones or whoever it is, or you can say – you know what, this team is good enough to win with average veteran quarterbacks. So let's let's start working through those guys until we get into a situation where, you know, a much better option falls into our laps. Talking with Sam Monson, lead NFL analyst for Pro Football Focus, co-host of the PFF NFL podcast. So let's get into some of what makes Washington potentially capable of dueling really well with a Fitzpatrick type at quarterback. You use that phrase, Super Bowl contender. That is a heavy phrase, clearly. What about Washington strikes you as Super Bowl contender worthy? Well, I think part of it is what they've done to the receiving core once Fitzpatrick was on board. You know, once you understand that, okay, this guy's our quarterback, it can't just be Terry McLaurin. We need to add some weapons and give him a much better chance of making plays. So you bring in a Curtis Samuel in free agency. Um, you draft a guy like Deami Brown in the third round, who a lot of people were extremely high on. Um, you still have guys like Cam Sims and Antonio Gandy-Golden. Suddenly that receiving group is looking like it's got a lot of playmakers and guys that can definitely make an impact and win some of those contested catches that Fitzpatrick is going to put in the air. Plus that backfield of you know guys like Antonio Gibson, who I don't think they've really scratched the surface yet in terms of what he can do at the NFL level. And they kept adding to an already elite defense. Um, William Jackson the third is... I think the best cornerback that was available in the or in, uh, in free agency, a guy that has some incredible tape over his NFL career and has all the tools that you need to be an elite player at that position, uh, should be an upgrade over what they had last year. Then in the draft, obviously, Jamin Davis. I, I just think they've done a lot of smart things and kept adding to the right positions. You mentioned Antonio Gibson. A recent piece that you wrote ranked the top 32 running backs in the NFL entering the 2021 season. You had Gibson 15th. You know, it's funny with him because he was like sort of this combo running back receiver at Memphis 
really wasn't utilized that much as a pass catcher in his rookie season. Did quite well, though, as a ball carrier. What do you see when you look at Gibson, and what can he be for Washington? Yeah, and that's what I mean. They, they really didn't scratch the surface of how he can be used. And actually, J.D. McKissick was the guy that was used as that kind of hybrid player a lot more than Gibson was, even though he's absolutely tailor-made for that kind of position. And now, I mean, I don't know if it's um, now that it's year two with this regime, we'll start to see them getting a lot more creative. But Curtis Samuel, Antonio Gibson, J.D. McKissick, suddenly the ability is there for this team to get very creative in terms of hybrid type players and what they do with alignment between running back and wide receiver and, and vice versa and really cause defenses some headaches just from a, an alignment and personnel standpoint without even calling the plays yet. And I'm really curious to see if they do that in year two of this, this regime. And also, you know, the other aspect is Ron Rivera was battling cancer for half last season. Like we probably haven't seen anything like what this group can do when they're hunt- when all of their focus is on this team, when all of their focus is on football. And I think we saw it towards the end of the season where they were playing a lot better. But this is now like a full year where they've had their time to dedicate to this roster in addition to adding all the talent that they've added. And I'm just excited for what this team can do with all those pieces. Yeah, uh, we are here 100%. Another recent piece you wrote had Matt Ioannidis as the most underrated player on Washington, you went through the most underrated players on all the NFL teams. I think a lot of people listening would agree with that. Ioannidis doesn't get enough credit for what he is. But what, for you, is the thing with Ioannidis that really jumps out? I just, I've always loved him as a player. Dating back to watching his play at Temple, he was just always a disruptive force in college. He's always been a disruptive force in the NFL. And it's just funny to me that in this, you know, defensive front with all of these first-round picks. These guys stacked up, Chase Young, Deron Payne, Jonathan Allen, Montez Sweat, all of these first-rounders that Matt Ioannidis has been arguably their most consistent pass-rushing force over the last few years. That guy just consistently generates pressure, disrupts plays, causes problems, um, and he was a fifth-round pick. Yeah, he's been really good for them, and he doesn't get enough credit for that. He's been super productive, especially in, like, limited snaps, too. He doesn't play nearly as much as some of the other interior defensive linemen. So you reference Washington's defense as being a lead. It took a massive step forward with what went down from 2019 into 2020. Do you see Washington's defense as being good enough to carry a team deep into a postseason? Like, is it at that level, or is it still at, like, that level beneath? Because we did see last season in the playoff loss at Tampa Bay, Brady and the Bucks carved up the Washington defense. It was it was a disappointing performance in an otherwise really good season. Like, I, I guess the question is, how good is the good of the Washington defense as you see it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably a deeper philosophical question about whether defenses period, can do that anymore. You know, whether any defense can carry a team throughout the playoffs, certainly in the face of these incredible offenses that we're going to be looking at right now. And if the NFL continues the trend of last season where it was record-setting passing an offense across the board, you know, even if you can, even if a defense can carry a team into the playoffs and maybe beat, you know, a wild-card team, you're going to have to go through Tampa Bay and you're going to have to go through Kansas City and you're going to have to go through like the best offenses in the NFL if you're going to win. And I, just, I don't think, first of all, I don't think Washington's defense is at that level yet. And I don't know if there's any defenses at that level in today's NFL where they can consistently shut down those teams every single week to the point where your offense doesn't really need to do much. 
I think you're going to need to have enough on the offensive side of the ball to at least hang with those teams and then rely on your defense making a couple of stops here and there to to make the difference. I know Tampa Bay, you know, you could argue that their defense was the difference in the Super Bowl, but Kansas City's offensive line was in ribbons at that point. Like they were starting basically a, a five man rotation of backups at that point. I'm not sure that's a a fair reflection of how good that defense is for, and, and how dominant it can be. So, yeah, I think Washington's defense is good enough to be as good as it was a year ago in a very good unit, but they're gonna, it's gonna struggle against the best offenses in the NFL because I just think defense is, um, so badly handicapped right now compared with offenses. So that's really interesting. So like the days of, you know, the 2000 Ravens, the 02 Bucks, the 2013 Seahawks, you think those days are essentially done? A defense truly leading the way to a Super Bowl championship? Yeah, I think unless something changes, you know, unless the rules swing back in some direction or they start getting more aggressive with holding calls and redress the balance with penalties or whatever it is, if things stay the same compared to what they were, you know, last season, I just don't think a defense is really capable of that level of dominance anymore. Great stuff. Sam Monson, lead NFL analyst for Pro Football Focus, co-host of the PFF NFL podcast. One of the best. Always love talking football with you, man. Continued success. Thanks. Take it easy. Well, I hate to say it, but the capital season could be over by the time we reconvene on this podcast on Monday. Capitals trailing the Boston Bruins, two games to one in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs. So we have two games in the series this weekend. Game four at Boston, Friday evening at 6.30. Game five at Capital One Arena, Sunday night at 7. So yes, in theory, the capital season could end this weekend. Let us hope that that is not the case. Incredibly, right? Every game in the series so far has been an overtime game. Game one, Caps beat the Bruins 3-2 in overtime at Capital One Arena. Game two, the Caps lost to the Bruins 4-3 in overtime at Capital One Arena. Game three, the Caps lost at the Bruins 3-2 in double overtime. The game was the 12th consecutive one-goal game between the Caps and the Bruins in the Stanley Cup playoffs. That's an NHL record. It has been remarkable the extent to which the Caps and the Bruins over the years have played close playoff games, and the trend has continued into this series. And there's no reason to think that that's going to change. I mean, logically speaking, it should change. But you tell me, if you're a Caps fan, you know, you just know, right, that on Friday evening, you're going to be sitting there at the end of the third period, and the game's going to be tied. And we're going to dive headfirst into overtime once again. We did have some good news for the Caps on Thursday. Lars Eller was back on the ice. Now, that doesn't mean that he'll play on Friday night, but that would seem to mean that he's getting close to being back. Lars Eller did not play in Game 3 due to a lower body injury that was suffered in Game 2, and Eller's absence hurt because his line with Connor Sheary and Michael Roffel had been checking the Bruins' top line, the perfection line of David Pasternak, Patrice Bergeron, and Brad Marchand, and the perfection line in Game 3 was terrific. The perfection line in Game 3 per natural stat trick over 15 minutes, 36 seconds of 5-on-5 play had a shot attempt percentage of 71.05. 27 shot attempts for 11 shot attempts against. Pasternak finished the game with a game-high 9 shots on goal. Bergeron finished the game with 7 shots on goal. So Eller being back would be huge. I'm not counting on it, but it feels like there is more reason to believe that it could happen. Uh, game three was another game in which the Caps lost the puck possession battle. Second consecutive game in which the Caps lost the puck possession battle. Caps for natural stat trick in game three, 55 five-on-five shot attempts 
to the Bruins 63. And how about what happened in the first overtime? You know, Caps were really lucky that the game did not end in the first overtime because the Caps in that first overtime per natural stat trick had just 12 5-on-5 shot attempts to the Bruins 25. Caps also had just five shots on goal to the Bruins 17. And this was a second consecutive game in which the Caps in a third period or overtime got smashed in the puck possession battle. The Caps in their game two loss to the Bruins got smashed overall in the puck possession battle per natural stat trick. 49 5-on-5 shot attempts to the Bruins 70. But how about this? In the third period, the Caps per natural stat trick had 14 5-on-5 shot attempts to the Bruins 30. Caps have got to do a better job late in these games when it comes to controlling the puck. Caps have got to find a way to even out the puck possession battle and to not have late stretches, you know, a third period, an overtime, in which the Caps get demolished in the puck possession battle, as has been the case over the last two games. The other interesting thing from Thursday was that Evgeny Kuznetsov did admit that he had COVID-19 again. So that's two times in this NHL season that Okuzi has had COVID. Is Kuznetsov going for the COVID hat trick? Because he's almost there, right? He's almost there in terms of getting COVID-19. Kuznetsov and goaltender Ilya Samsonov, of course, were back for game three. That was a good thing to see. Kuznetsov and Samsonov each had missed the Caps' previous seven games, right? Each guy not playing in the first game of that stretch due to team disciplinary reasons. The players were late to a team function. And then each guy had been out due to COVID-19 protocols. And now we know that Kuzi, in fact, was out due to having tested positive for COVID-19 again. Now, I thought Kuznetsov played fine in Game 3, skated for 26 minutes, 41 seconds, had no points, just one shot on goal, and just two total shot attempts, but he was fourth on the caps in five-on-five shot attempt percentage per natural stat trick at 55. You can always email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. I got this email from Phil in Columbia, Maryland. He writes, here is one theory I have about Kuznetsov of the Caps. Do you think he likes being a hockey player more than he really likes playing hockey? I've heard that in the past about some football players. I get the feeling the Caps are growing tired of his shortcomings. I think you're right about that. He's starting to seem like former Cap Alexander Semin, who seemed to have a boatload of talent, but lacked a certain fire in the belly. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Phil. Yes, the Semen-Kuznetsov comparison has been made before. I think it's an apt one. Here's the thing, though, with Kuznetsov. He may not love playing hockey. I mean, that's a tough thing to assess, right? I mean, I'm not a mind reader. I don't know. But I do know that he can play hockey at a supremely high level. And I will never forget the fact that it was Kuznetsov, not the Smythe Trophy winner, Alex Ovechkin, who led the Caps in points in the 2018 Stanley Cup playoffs, which of course resulted in the Caps hoisting Lord Stanley's Cup. In the biggest run in the history of the franchise, Evgeny Kuznetsov delivered. And so he's capable of playing at this super high level, this super clutch level. And I'm just like, I always come back to that with Kuznetsov because you're right, Phil, he does frustrate the Capitals. He frustrates the Capitals in all kinds of ways. And and I know that there's a theory for some people that Kuznetsov has had a negative influence on Samsonov. But to me, Kuznetsov is too gifted to just kind of throw off to the side. Like, you got to try to figure it out with a guy like Evgeny Kuznetsov because the talent begs that. And remember, the Caps have signed Kuznetsov to a long-term contract. So the Caps are kind of stuck with Kuznetsov, whether they want to be or not. Like, could they trade him? Yeah, I suppose. But the best way for this to work out is for Evgeny Kuznetsov to be a productive player for the Capitals, as he has been. And hopefully we see that here. 
this postseason. But I don't think you're wrong to wonder about the things that you wonder about. I, I mean, I, I think that there is something to that. Uh, as for Samsonov, so will he give the Capitals for the first time in this series the same starting goaltender in back-to-back games? I tend to think yes. It doesn't feel like Vitek Vanacek is close to coming back from his lower body injury. Remember, Vitek started game number one, left the game in the first period with that lower body injury, hasn't played since. We, of course, saw Craig Anderson for the rest of game one and then for all of game two. And it was Samsonov who was the Caps' third different starting goaltender over the first three games of this series in game three. And he largely played well. I mean, what happened on the game winner was a killer. The miscommunication between Samsonov and defenseman Justin Schultz resulting in the Craig Smith game winner in double overtime. But beyond that, and you can't just erase that, understand that, but Samsonov did play well. Like, you can't just let that one bad moment erase what Samsonov did the rest of that game. He stopped 40 of the 43 shots on goal that he faced. Per natural stat trick, stopped five of the six high danger shots on goal that he faced. 20 of the 21 medium danger shots on goal that he faced. And 12 of the 13 low danger shots on goal that he faced. Samsonov stopped 20 of the 21 shots on goal that he faced over the first two periods. He stopped all 17 of the shots on goal that he faced in the first overtime. He did a good job. He kept the caps in the game. What you really would like to see is, and this goes back to the puck possession stuff, but can the goaltender not have to face 40 plus shots on goal in game four? Craig Anderson faced 48 shots on goal in game two. Samsonov faced 43 shots on goal in game three. It would be nice for the Capitals goaltender, whoever it is, and I think it'll be Samsonov, not to be bombarded with shot on goal after shot on goal in this game on Friday evening. But look, Caps are, I don't want to say like they're up against it. I mean, they're only down 2-1. But clearly, if you lose on Friday evening, you're down 3-1, and that's a very difficult spot to come back from. And if the Cavs do lose on Friday evening, then you're staring right down the barrel of a third consecutive first-round exit for the Capitals in the Stanley Cup playoffs. And that would hurt. That would. 2018 Stanley Cup championship was great, but since then, right, first-round exit to the Carolina Hurricanes in seven games in the 2019 Stanley Cup playoffs. First round exit to the New York Islanders in five games in the 2020 Stanley Cup playoffs. You don't want anything like that this year. Caps have got to get out of this series. I still believe the Caps can win this series. This thing to me is going to go seven games. I think this is going to be a lengthy series. I've always felt that way. I think it's going to continue to be close. It's going to continue to be painful. And if you're a Caps fan and you want some stress-free playoff games, you're going to be out of luck in this series, okay? I'd love to see like a 6 nothing Caps win on Friday evening. I'm not counting on that. But the Caps can win this series, but they've got to figure out a way to do better in the puck possession battle. They've got to get stability in net. Hopefully, they're getting that now with Samsonov in there. And boy, it sure would be nice for someone like a Kuznetsov or, of course, an Alex Ovechkin to catch fire. I think Ovi's had a good series so far, but, you know, the Caps have gotten their goals from different players in different circumstances. It wouldn't be the worst thing if someone put the team on his back at this point, and maybe just maybe you start to see that in Game 4 at the Bruins. So we have Nationals Orioles at Nationals Park this weekend, the first of the Battle of the Beltways in the 2021 season. And the truth is, neither team is doing very well right now. We'll get to the O's coming up in just a bit. But the Nats wrapped up a 3-4 and four road trip with a 5-2 loss at the Chicago Cubs on Thursday afternoon. Nats end up losing 3-4 of four at Wrigley Field. Now have lost 11 of the team's last 16 games. Another way of saying that is the Nats over their last 16 games are 5 and 11. Okay, we wound up 5 and 11. Not very good. 
Yes, Steve Spurrier, exactly. 5-11 and 11 isn't very good. That is true. And the Nats now on the season are just 17-23. and 23. Uh, The Nats offense remains the thing. The offense just isn't very good. The Nats now have scored three runs or less in 12 of the team's last 17 games. The Nats on Thursday afternoon, just six hits and three walks, struck out 14 times. Nats got back-to-back homers from Josh Bell and Kyle Schwarber with two outs in the top of the first, and then that was it. Uh, that was it in terms of Nats runs for the rest of the game. Like, you just look at the lineup, especially the one that was on display on Thursday afternoon. And yes, it was the day game after a night game. Victor Robles did not play due to his right ankle injury. Jan Gomes was given the day off. He's been catching a whole heck of a lot. Josh Harrison, who's an older player, didn't start. But I mean, listen to this lineup. Alex Avila, your starting catcher, was your number six batter. Jordy Mercer, your starting second baseman, was your number seven batter. I mean, it just, this lineup just does not scare you at all in any meaningful way, even with the reserves playing on Thursday afternoon. I get that. But even if the regulars are playing, this is not a lineup that frightens you. You know, you hear the phrase in baseball a lot of, this team has a lengthy lineup. The Nationals have a short lineup, okay? You hear about depth all the time. The Nats are shallow. This is one of the shallowest Nationals teams I can remember, certainly since the team got good beginning with the 2012 season. I still would love to know the answer to the question of, did Mike Rizzo really think this was the best roster he could put together in the offseason? Or was Mike Rizzo not allowed to do as he wanted to do in the offseason? Because again, the Nats are just not a very well-constructed team. They're not a deep team. And they're not a super talented team. Like, there is talent on the Nats, yes. But it's not a team that scares you, certainly with the lineup. And man, was that the case in that game on Thursday. There's just not a lot happening with this team offensively right now. Trey Turner on Thursday afternoon. He's had a good season so far. Uh, Trey went one for three with a single and a walk. Turner had a leadoff eight-pitch walk in the Nats two-run first, despite having been down to the count at 1.12. Had a leadoff single in the top of the third, despite having been down to the count at 1.12. Although he got caught stealing later in that inning on a strike-em-out, throw-em-out double play. Uh, That was a brutal moment there. Uh, Trey Turner does not get thrown out stealing often. He did in that spot, fell to eight for nine on stolen bases on the season. Juan Soto on Thursday afternoon, number two batter, 0 for three with a walk and a strikeout. Starling Castro is a number five batter, did go two for four with a couple of singles, but he struck out twice, also had two errors in the field. Uh, I mentioned Alex Avila. He was a starting catcher, the number six batter, 0 for three with a walk and three strikeouts. Jordy Mercer, starting second baseman, number seven batter, 0 for four, with two strikeouts. Jordy Mercer's slash line now on the year, 231 batting average, 250 on base percentage, 282 slugging percentage, and he was your number seven batter on Thursday afternoon. Andrew Stevenson was out there for the injured Victor Robles. Stevenson had a rough game, 0 for 3, with two strikeouts as a starting center fielder and number nine batter. Good news, by the way, on Robles. The x-rays on his right ankle did come out negative, according to Davey Martinez in his pregame Zoom press conference. So hopefully Victor is back sooner rather than later. As for the Nationals pitching on Thursday afternoon, another bad start for Joe Ross. Second consecutive bad outing for him. He was not good. He gave up four runs, two earned, and three and two-thirds innings on five hits, a homer, and four singles, a walk, and a hit by pitch versus three strikeouts on 78 pitches, 52 strikes versus 26 balls. Ross gave up a run in the bottom of the second on a leadoff single by David Bodie on a 1-2 pitch, a single by Nico Horner, and an RBI sack fly by Nick Martini. Ross allowed two runs in the bottom of the third on a two-out fielding error 
by third baseman Starling Castro on a hard hit grounder and then a two out two run homer by Ian Happ despite him having been down to the count at one point one two and Ross gave up a run in the bottom of the fourth on a one out seven pitch walk in Nick Martini despite him having been down to the count at one point oh two a two out single by the Cubs starting pitcher Trevor Williams and a two out RBI single by Jock Peterson. Ross just was not that impressive. His third bad start by my count this season. Uh, Ross in his last start, the 11-4 loss at the Arizona Diamondbacks last Saturday night, got rocked eight runs in four innings. It's been a strange year for Joe Ross. Eight total starts. In three of the starts, he's been really bad. In the other five starts, though, he's been quite good. In fact, his ERA over those other five starts is 163. That's outstanding, of course. But I really do wonder now, Eric Fetty, yes, is on the COVID-19 injured list, but we know he got vaccinated, and so presumably his absence won't be for that long. Given how Fetty looked in his last outing, and given how Ross has pitched in his two most recent outings, I really do wonder now if, in fact, Eric Fetty is going to replace Joe Ross in the Nationals rotation. I mean, I think that's still very much a question with the way that Ross has trended here lately, and it's not like Fetty's been dominant this season, but I think Fetty has shown signs of blossoming this season. And personally, I'd like to see more. We do know that Steven Strasburg is back in the Nationals rotation. Davey Martinez did make that official during his post-game Zoom press conference. Strasburg is going to be activated off the 10-day injured list and start game one against the Orioles on Friday night. That'll be a 7.05 for its pitch. Strasburg versus Jorge Lopez. Uh, we have not seen Strasburg pitch in a very long time. The Nats put Strasburg on the 10-day injured list on April 18th, retroactive to April 15th with right shoulder inflammation. His last outing was all the way back on April 13th, came in a 14-3 loss at the St. Louis Cardinals. And remember, Strasburg got shelled in that game. Eight runs, seven earned in four innings. His only other start this season was a 2-0 Nats loss to the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park on April 7th in game two of a doubleheader. And Strasburg was right in that game. Six scoreless innings on eight strikeouts. It goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway, the Nats need Strasburg to stay healthy and pitch well. This is year two of a 70-year, $245 million contract that he was re-signed to in December 2019. He has missed a lot of time over the last two seasons. Like, we are right back now into that territory of Steven Strasburg being oft injured, right? He underwent surgery last August 26 to alleviate carpal tunnel neuritis in his right hand. He ended up making two starts, pitching a total of five innings in the 2020 season. He needs to stay healthy and he needs to start eating up some innings. And hopefully that starts Friday night in the game against the Orioles. I do want to say this, the Nats bullpen I thought was a bright spot on Thursday afternoon. Four Nats relievers combining to allow one run in four into third inning. Sam Clay faced two batters, bottom of the fourth, gave up a single, but then induced a ground out for the third out. Austin Voth did give up a run over two innings, allowed a leadoff homer to Ian Happ on an 0-2 pitch in the bottom of the fifth. But Kyle McGowan, tossed one into third scoreless innings. And Will Harris looked good. Faced two batters in the bottom of the eighth, got two outs, including striking out Anthony Rizzo on four pitches. The Nats, though, have got to start getting themselves some wins. The good news is they do now have a nine-game homestand, three games against the Orioles, three games against the Cincinnati Reds, three games against the Milwaukee Brewers. That would seem to be a homestand on which you can pick up some wins because the Orioles are not good the Brewers are under 500. The Reds are under 500. So nine consecutive games against three losing teams. You should be able to go, you know, five and four, six and three and start to pad your record a little bit here. But we'll see. You know, none of, it doesn't matter who you're facing if you can't hit. 
And the Nationals right now, they're not elevating. They're not putting balls in the air. They're still not hitting for nearly enough power. They're not drawing enough walks either. And this three runs or less thing is a killer. And so you wonder now, the Nationals offense, not very good, but you're about to face a team in the Orioles whose pitching was horrible over the last three games. Yeah, and let's get to that right now. The Orioles swept in three games against the Tampa Bay Rays at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. 13-6 loss on Tuesday night, 9-7 loss on Wednesday night, and a 10-1 loss on Thursday afternoon. Yes, the Orioles in this series end up getting outscored 32-14 over the three games. The O's now have lost 10 of 12, are 17-26 and on the season. Yes, the Nationals can't hit, but the Orioles cannot pitch. The pitching was wretched in this series against the Rays. We'll start with the starting pitching. Dean Kramer in the 10-1 loss on Thursday afternoon. Four runs in three innings on five hits, which were two homers, a double, and two singles. Issued four walks, had three strikeouts through 63 pitches. And how about this strikes versus balls ratio? 35 strikes, 28 balls. You know, it's disappointing because Kramer was coming off having been at least decent in each of his three previous outings, during which he had allowed six runs in 16 innings. That works out to a 338 ERA. We were starting to see, I thought, some signs of growth from Dean Kramer, but he was really bad on Thursday afternoon. And the bottom line is he now has an ERA of 635 over eight starts on the season. You also remember had John Means having issues in this series, 9-7 loss on Wednesday night, four runs and six into third innings. And you had Matt Harvey getting wrecked in the 13-6 loss on Tuesday night. Six runs in one and two-thirds innings. And then there's the Orioles bullpen, which was a special kind of bad in this series. Orioles relievers in the series combined to allow 18 runs in 16 innings. Four Orioles relievers in a 10-1 loss on Thursday afternoon combined to give up six runs in six innings. The Orioles' bullpen could not buy an out over these three games against the Rays. So yeah, man, the Nats are going to have a chance to get some hits and score some runs against this Orioles pitching, especially when you consider that Means isn't scheduled to pitch in the series at Nationals Park. The pitching matchups as things stand are Steven Strasburg versus Jorge Lopez in game one on Friday night at 7.05. John Lester versus Bruce Zimmerman in game two on Saturday afternoon at 4.05. And Patrick Corbin versus Matt Harvey on Sunday afternoon at 1.05. So the Nats catch a break and not facing Means, who even with the lackluster outing on Wednesday night has had an excellent season so far this year. Uh, Another note, Trey Mancini did end up having a big series. Another good game for him in the loss on Thursday afternoon. Leadoff homer on an 0-2 pitch in the bottom of the fourth and a leadoff seven-pitch walk in the bottom of the seventh. This off what he did in that 9-7 loss on Wednesday night. Four hits and five RBI. Mancini now on the season over 182 plate appearances. Batting average of 274, on base percentage of 341, slugging percentage of 518. Just a terrific job by Mancini. The numbers have really come up lately. Leads the majors with 39 runs batted in. Another thing to be mindful of for Nats O's this weekend, the O's are set to get back Anthony Santander. So whereas the Nationals are getting back Steven Strasburg on Friday night, the O's are due to be getting back Anthony Santander. Manager Brandon Hyde on Thursday said that Santander will be back 
for game one of this three-game series at the Nationals. The O's on April 21st put Santander on the 10-day injured list with a sprained left ankle. Santander is a good player and a nice story. Dan Duquette selected Santander in the Rule 5 draft in December 2016. If you're an O's fan, you remember this. The Rule 5 draft was a Dan Duquette specialty. Uh, the 2021 season is his age 26 season. Santander last season, over 165 plate appearances, had a 575 slugging percentage. And if you look at some of his defensive numbers. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Santander over the previous two years, 2019 and 2020, plus 13 defensive runs saved combined in right field over those two seasons. So there's a lot to like with Anthony Santander. O's are going to benefit in getting him back for this series at the Nationals. But still, this is a series in which the Nats bats, if they're ever going to be good, should be good. And, you know, the Orioles are, of course, a tanking, rebuilding team, as we talk about all the time. This is a series in which the Nats have to get two wins minimum, okay? And really a three-game sweep, especially when you consider the pitching matchups. Again, Strasburg back and no John Means pitching for the O's. All right, guys, look, no one's perfect. Even the best baseball players strike out with the bases loaded. The best golfers sometimes three-putt with the tournament on the line. So if you feel like you come up short in the bedroom sometimes, it's perfectly okay. But if it's bothering you, there are options. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. A U.S. licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi and complete an online visit. Take care of your ED without leaving home. Complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now to get $15 off your first month. Look, there's a straightforward way to take care of your ED. GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi. Get started now to save $15 on your first month of treatment. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. Always enjoy hearing from you guys. You can tweet me at AlGaldi. You can email me, the AlGaldi podcast 
at yahoo.com. This weekend sets up to be a big one. Capitals, Bruins, games four and five. Wizards, 76ers, game one. Three game series for the Nationals against the Orioles at Nationals Park. And who knows what will happen with the Washington football team. So we're going to have so much to get into on Monday's installment of the podcast. The weekend, always a great time to catch up on anything that you may have missed on the podcast. Lots of great stuff regarding the Washington football team this week. Monday show, episode 64, I reacted to and had some fun with the best of what Ron Rivera said at his rookie minicamp Zoom press conferences. Tuesday show, episode 65, in-depth reaction to Ryan Kerrigan joining the Philadelphia Eagles and also a good conversation with sports business insider Daniel Kaplan of The Athletic about the Dan Snyder-Bruce Allen feud. Wednesday show, episode 66, got into Washington, reportedly giving Morgan Moses permission to seek a trade and we know where that ended up leading to. And Thursday show, episode 66, I looked at another theme to Washington's offseason that has emerged, a focus on acquiring slash re-signing special teams aces. And I talked with Dolphins insider Josh Tolentino of the Athletic Miami about the three now former Dolphins of significance who Washington has acquired this offseason, Bobby McCain, Eric Flowers, and Ryan Fitzpatrick. If you have the time, and this doesn't take much time, please give the podcast a five-star rating and just write like a one-sentence review doing these things helps out the podcast a lot. Have a great weekend. I'll talk to you on Monday. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast.